0: if you did not vote for us i want you to know that we will stand up for you and work for you every single day
1: okay good morning to you this is mike smith and that of course the voice of liberal leader justin trudeau once again the liberals win another minority government once again trudeau the prime minister designate here after last night's election okay we've got fantastic election coverage for you we got some great guests coming up lots of highlights from the speeches last night and of course lots of opportunity to have your say on the open line so let's kick it right off with our panel this morning bill Thielman, president of Star communications watching the results closely last night bill thanks a lot for coming on again Thanks, Mike. Also on the line is Chris Sims, BC Director, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having us. Okay, guys, let's jump right into this. Chris, let me go to you first. What jumped out at you? Well, it's really more of the same.
2: I don't know if anybody's really super happy with the results of the election. It doesn't matter if you're hardcore liberal NDP or conservative supporter or PPC. It just seems to be more of the same. Um, The one good thing I do take from it is since it's a minority uh, parliament, that means that they don't have the majority in committees, which means that investigations and clarity and accountability can still happen at the committee level. So that's a really good sign.
1: It was kind of clear, I thought, early on in this election that this result was very, very likely, that we were just going to get a a do-over and (laughs) nothing would change at all. I mean, this has got to go down as one of the, I don't know, one of the dumbest elections I've ever seen, especially when you look at the result. I mean... Does Trudeau come out of this thing any worse for wear? I mean, he took a lot of heat for calling this election in the first place.
2: I think he's a little different from other leaders of other parties, I would say, historically, because for the first time in a long time, he's a brand. You know, he's, he's a persona. And within his own party, um, you know, people literally have T-shirts printed with his face on it. Like, if he's a different sort of leader. He's not a Paul Martin. He's not a Stephen Harper. He's not a jean Chrétien. Um, so I would say he's a bit different that way.
1: Okay, despite the minority result, Trudeau yesterday casting it as a mandate to continue governing. Let me play another brief clip here for you from Trudeau speaking last night. and Then we'll get Bill Thielman's thoughts. Here's Trudeau.
0: What we've seen tonight is that millions of Canadians have chosen... A progressive plan. Some have talked about division,
1: but that's not what I see. That's not what I've seen these past weeks across the country. Okay, a progressive plan, millions of Canadians supported. i still lost the popular vote again, though. Bill Tillman, your thoughts?
3: Yeah, well, millions of Canadians stayed home because they thought it was a waste yeah. of time and money, and it was 600000000 million. I'll sound like Chris Simms, $600 million wasted. Yep. Uh, listen, Mike, we, we could see more seat change in a kid's game of musical chairs than we saw last night. This is absolutely uh, astonishing. And When you looked at, the, at all the charts online of gain, loss, plus one, minus one, plus two, minus two, just ridiculous uh, it, this was clearly an unnecessary election uh, the the results kind of prove that if, if Canadians really felt it was time for a change or time to give to reward the Liberals for the job they're doing it sure didn't happen last night well I think people are going to be pretty pretty surly for the next couple of years about Parliament and government
1: well does it leave Trudeau in any sort of weakened position? I mean, if it's just sort of a Groundhog Day do-over thing, uh, isn't he just in the same spot? We're just right back where we started. Or do you think he comes out of it weaker?
3: Well, I think he comes out of it okay because he's the Prime Minister, because he has the most seats. I think the people in the Liberal Party will presumably say yeah you know we we could things could have gone a lot worse i think uh, i mean anime poll of the green party is gone 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 fourth place finish they lost their deposit in her writing after she spent the almost the entire election there oh so that, wow. that's that's a done deal i think Arno o'toole's in a lot of trouble whether he can survive or not is not clear jagmeet singh picked up one two seats whatever uh, ran a positive campaign i don't know that a positive campaign is uh, necessarily a good thing but he didn't lose ground so he's probably okay. Trudeau's fine for a while but you got to remember the liberal party put a knife in Jean Chrétien after he won three consecutive mm. majorities so who
1: knows. Well, I don't I don't think they're going to put the knife into Trudeau but who knows. Like you say, uh let me play another c- clip of uh this is Aaron O'Toole uh, the Conservative leader, and an interesting speech from him last night. He sounded pretty fired up, although obviously this is not the result he wanted. So here's Aaron O'Toole talking last night, saying he's optimistic about the future.
0: In the months ahead, as Mr. Trudeau gears up for yet another election, we must continue this journey to welcoming more Canadians
1: to, make, to take another look at our party. More people voted for Canada's Conservatives than any other party and that's a strength to build on. Our support has grown, it's grown across the country, but clearly there is more work for us to do to earn the trust of Canadians. Okay, Chris Sims, sounds like a guy who wants another crack at it. Do you think he'll be allowed to hang on as conservative leader? Yeah,
2: he might have gotten his speaking notes mixed up. I thought that was the speech he was supposed to be giving to caucus today, right? (laughs) Rather than to to the mainstream media. Uh, Yeah, he's going to have a lot of serious questions put to him starting like this morning, one of the main reasons why they broke that massive promise uh, on the carbon tax, for example, after they signed our pledge with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, after they went to the entire leadership race and the policy convention all saying the same thing, no carbon tax. They broke that promise because they said, hey, this is our golden ticket to win the 905. So the suburban area around Toronto and frankly, the area around Vancouver here, Metro Vancouver, that didn't happen. That didn't happen and he yeah. broke a few other big major core promises what? within the conservatives he's going to have a lot of questions
1: put to him what went wrong for this guy because the campaign for o'toole seemed to start well he had good momentum early on and then it just seemed to sort of stall well, and well, for like, whatever reason the you know why can't the conservatives make it lay a glove on this guy trudeau if you take a look at the the list of scandals, I mean, it just yeah. snc Laval, and We Charity, Blackface, the, the, uh, the aga Khan's Private Island, it, it just goes on and on and on, but they can't, they just can't get, they can't put a glove but, on him, Bill.
3: But Mike, but, yeah, Mike, look at the two key mistakes that Erno Toole and the Conservatives made. Number one, on gun control. All they needed to say was, we'll set up an independent panel to look at the gun laws, and let them make recommendations and get that issue off the table. Instead, they fudged around, then they switched their position mid yep. midstream. Second one, uh, how can you run in a COVID election without saying your candidates will be vaccinated? It's insane. Yeah. I mean, the, ma- the overwhelming majority of people want to see people vaccinated. They're not the Maxine Bernier characters, the pe- People's Party. People are not the anti-maskers who are outside hospitals. And yet, Aaron O'Toole couldn't say his candidates were all ma- uh, uh, vaccinated. So those two things just put a huge poll and the conservatives okay. written the chris, campaign
1: chris do you agree with that i mean the wedge issue seemed to work for trudeau
2: well, it is a major wedge issue, and people feel really strongly about it. And I yeah. think you can see that, for example, with the uh, what they call vote splitting. And I don't think it's even supposed to be called vote splitting at this case, because both Maxime Bernier and Aaron O'Toole were saying very different things on things like carbon taxes, gun control, and vaccine issues. And so, yeah, they if you look at some of the ridings, especially in Alberta and in Metro Vancouver, the difference between the Conservatives and the Liberals was the People's Party votes. So there's a serious Issue that they need to work out there, and as far as uh, the gun control thing goes, you're right in that the sense that he not only just changed his mind, he footnoted his own platform.
3: Yeah, I think yeah. that's
2: the first time I've ever seen an active living document of a platform footnoted. Whereas, yeah, he could have said, "Yeah, we'll study it later," and that would have satisfied I think everybody on that side of the issue.
1: Let me get your thoughts on NDP leader Jugmeet Singh, 25 seats for the NDP last night. Some of these numbers could change as they count the mail-in ballots. But here's Singh last night. ...talking about how he's going to continue to fight for Canadians. If we got that. Okay, I guess we don't have that clip. Bill, your thoughts on Jugmeet Singh's performance last night?
3: Well, he had a disappointing night. There's no way around it. He held his own. I'm hoping that in Vancouver, Granville, that the NDP can win that seat over the House Flipper. I think once the mail ballots are counted, that might be the result... But, um, you know, I think that the NDP were hoping to do much better than that. Uh, yeah. They had real problems. They got squeezed, uh, as is often the case by uh, by the Liberals on on the whole. Uh, if you don't vote for us, you're going to get the Conservatives. But, I mean, that was known going in. I, I, I thought it was a, a decent campaign, a positive campaign. Jagmeet is the most likable leader, but it hasn't yeah. translated into seats in Ontario. Uh, lost the only seat in the Atlantic, couldn't pick any up there held one seat in Quebec. So again, it's it's a disappointment.
1: Okay, what do you think about that, Chris? I, I agree that Singh is a likable kind of guy, and he does come across as sort of a, a warm political pol- uh, leader, but he just doesn't seem to be able to turn that into votes and seats in the House of Commons.
2: If I were to take off my CTF hat for a second and put on my my analyst hat, I would say, yeah, he's got his own personal positive personality. Um, If I were that team, I would try to expand it a little bit more back into the Bill Blakey, the Jack Layton type of NDPer. And so that way he can have kind of designates and deputies that are really strong characters running in different regions. So somebody who's a really long-term Atlantic Canadian talking about more blue-collar issues, whereas, say, in urban centres of toronto and vancouver you're talking more about environmental issues and social right. issues um, there's a lot of room for growth and improvement in that party and okay. that's the advice i'd give him
1: okay here's that jagmeet singh clip let's give him his due here in his time here he is we fought to make sure people got more help we fought to increase the serve we fought to increase the wage subsidy we saved millions of jobs and we helped millions of canadians stay at home we are going to continue fighting for you just the same way we fought for you in the pandemic, you can count on us to continue those fights.
2: Certainly, I am disappointed. Uh, It is hard to lose. No one likes to lose. Uh, But I'm so proud of the effort, um, the creativity, the innovation that our team brought to this race.
1: Okay, Annamie Paul there, the federal Green Party leader on the election result last night. Tough night for her. She finishes far behind in her own riding in in Toronto. The Green Party had two seats last night. Uh, Phone lines are open. Chris Sims and Bill Thielman are my guests. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 in your cell. Wayne in Richmond. Hey, Wayne.
0: Hi, Mike. Uh, one issue that I don't think was covered was uh, when Trudeau called this, I think he knew he was going to depress the seniors' vote. I, I would assume that seniors' vote was down by 40%. I mean, in my own writing, they put the advance poll up on the second floor, limited parking in the area, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. The other thing, um, you know, I don't think uh, what happened in Vancouver-Granville with the house flippers and with Trudeau being unethical really shows what the uh, Liberal vote is. I mean. Terrible to be unethical. It's terrible to flip houses unless you're liberal. And then the pandemic I mean, 25,000 more Canadians died than uh, South Koreans, and yet they have a population 14 million more. Uh, nobody asked them how the hell did this happen. And you and I might know the flights that kept coming in from India with the Delta variant in April, where civilized okay. countries
1: had closed those down. Thank you for the call. Chris, your thoughts. Again, I
2: think we're hearing that nobody's pleased with any of this. And if there's any bit of hope I can give them is that we do have a functioning democracy, warts and all. And if you are unhappy, stay in touch with that MP be on top of them and their issues. Make sure you're phoning them and emailing them because, you know, I think we're going to be back talking about this within the next 18 months.
1: Bill, do you think that I thought the caller made an interesting point about seniors votes? Um, Do you think that there was a calculation in any way in the liberal strategy here to have a low voter turnout? And they thought maybe that would be a good thing?
3: I don't think necessarily to do with seniors, because we know that seniors vote in a much higher proportion than young people or middle-aged people. They're the one group that you can count on to vote, by and large. Um, So I don't think that's the case. But overall, yeah, I think, look, an August election in the middle of a COVID pandemic, you're not going to get a lot of people out. I think, uh, you know, if you'd offered uh, an easier way to do mail ballots, I'll bet your mail ballots would have been much more substantial, because we saw that in the last B.C. election. So no I think I think it's part of the strategy but look uh, Trudeau thought that he could uh, ride a crest of hey I dealt with COVID-19 and I'm the guy to get us going in the economy again and then right. we got the fourth wave big miscalculation
1: Simone in Surrey hi
2: Hi, I think I've got an unpopular opinion where I'm grateful for the election last night. I'm in Coverdale-Langley City riding, and we were able to get rid of Tamara Jansen, who was made famous by calling the LGBTQ community unclean. And I think the alternative that we have, who is John Aldeg, it, 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 he's filled with integrity, and I'm, I, I think we sent a message, and I think there's other writings that are like ours.
1: Okay, thanks for the call. Well, some people might be happy with a minority government um, result chris sims
2: yeah exactly and that's what i was getting to where you can still hold people accountable both at the committee level so on parliament hill that means like c10 for example that internet censorship bill that yeah. might not get passed through uh, we might not have to deal with those kind of gag laws and to the caller's point this is important that you can have your voice heard and so if they're happy now with the mp they have that's important and if folks aren't happy then they need to stay on top okay. of it it's, it's the it's the best system we've got
1: Squeeze in another call here. Cameron and Chilliwack, hi.
4: Oh, hey, hey guys. Uh, I've got two quick points. The first one is I hope that uh, Aaron O'Toole survives this. I, as a red Tory, I'd love to see a red Tory at the head of the party. And I think that he needs to let the 5 or 6% of the crazy right wing go to Maxine because I think he'll pick up 10 to 15% of the red Tories that are parked with the Liberals right now. And the other one mm. is, unfortunately, for all the wrong reasons, I don't think Jagmeet Singh is electable in Quebec. Uh, And
0: that's something that that they're going to have to come to grips with.
1: Okay, Bill Tielman, your thoughts?
3: Well, everybody in the NDP has been unelectable in Quebec except for Jack Lee. (laughs) (laughs) So I think we have to just be honest about that. And I I don't think – I kind of have an idea what the caller is getting at. Uh, uh, On O'Toole, I agree. I think uh, Aaron O'Toole was going in the right direction. I don't know – whether the conservatives, like this is the Civil War and the Conservative Party reopening itself again, uh, it, possibly, because look, you can't win a majority unless you're appealing more to the center. And I think O'Toole got that. Uh, he didn't run on that. That's part of his problem. He, he made an alliance to get the leadership with social conservatives and then flip flopped yeah. on them. And I, so I think he's going to have a hard time. We'll see if he okay. survives this or not.
1: Okay, 30 seconds, Chris. You want to wrap it up? Well, Stephen
2: Harper did have a majority, and he was more centrist than people paint him, um, but I don't think he's nearly as centrist or as flippy as we've seen with the current leadership, and it's a tough. Uh, nobody's arguing that this isn't a tough situation. To give okay. you an idea of cost here and how much it cost, yeah. we could hire 1,000 new paramedics and employ oh. them full-time for 10 years
1: based oh, on man. what that
2: election
1: just cost okay all right guys thanks for coming on today appreciate it thank you thanks, Mike. tonight canadians did not give mr trudeau the majority mandate he wanted canadians
0: sent him back with another minority at the cost of $600 million and deeper divisions in our great country.
1: All right. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole in his speech last night. O'Toole sounded pretty fired up despite the election results, maybe trying to make a pitch to hang on as the conservative party leader and try again in another election down the road. It's a, cons- it's a liberal minority parliament once again. Let's continue our analysis now with my guest. Michael Tobe. Michael is a columnist for Troy Media and Looney Politics. He's a contributor to the National Post and the Washington Times. He was a speechwriter for former conservative prime minister Stephen Harper. And I'm pleased to welcome him back. Michael, thanks a lot for coming on. Oh, my pleasure, Mike. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing great. It's great to have you here. And it was interesting to hear O'Toole last night. What did you think about uh, what O'Toole had to say last night after the results? Can he hang on here as the Conservative leader, do you think? Yeah, I do. And it's, it's mostly due
0: to a number of reasons. Well, one, obviously, being the tradition that any political leader typically gets two kicks at the can or two attempts to win an election. And it doesn't always follow that way, as we know Andrew Scheer, the previous conservative leader, only lasted one election. So sometimes, you know, the party members, people, circumstances, you can see moments of sickleness or the fact that people are just flitting around and can't decide what they want to do or they have a different political idea in mind or a different philosophy in mind. So they just basically overhaul the system and change it. But typically conservative leaders last two elections unless there's some mitigating reason why they shouldn't. And although, obviously, the result was disappointing for the Conservatives, they expected a lot more, not only to necessarily win, they had hoped that they would get an increased number of seats, Uh, they would actually narrow the Liberal minority to something even smaller, and if they had won, I mean, obviously, that would have been a huge accomplishment, and that would have been different. But I think that overall, O'Toole's um, speech yesterday was sort of a combination of two things one to reassure conservative voters that they're on the right track and conservative supporters too and secondly to ensure that his message of sort of a small c conservative approach sort of looking at a kind of a moderate type issue on social issues more of a fiscally conservative approach on matters that that is going to be the model moving forward if he remains leader and his intention obviously is not only to remain leader, but to lead them into the next election, which will probably be, as a guess, if you look at the history of minority governments, even though this one lasted a while, typically 12 to 18 months, which is, I think, what we're looking at.
1: Okay, Justin Trudeau back in the Prime Minister's office with another minority. Here is Trudeau last night, Michael, thanking his candidates. Thank you for being part of this important moment. Political
0: life isn't easy. This is a path you choose because you believe in serving those around you thank you for your
1: service okay rolled the dice on a pandemic election michael hoping it would turn up uh, come out of it with a majority government just like john horgan did here in british columbia with his own pandemic election didn't work out for trudeau does he come out of this in a weakened position do you think oh
0: absolutely it doesn't mean he'll necessarily fall as leader of the country but yeah he's severely weakened he wasted a reported $610 million, according to Elections Canada, to hold this from a 22-month-old government that would have lasted through the pandemic and through the next year or so because yeah. of his left-wing partners in the NDP, the Greens, the Bloc, would have continued to obviously negotiate with them, but would have worked hand-in-hand to push through most legislation that would sort of match their interests or meet their ideology. Um, and basically, in the end, he came out with only three seats above where he was at the dissolution of Parliament, and really only one seat above where he was in the 2019 federal election. And his vote share has dropped yet again. I mean, I know that mail-in ballots are still coming in, Mike, and the numbers could change a little bit. But as of right now, he is leading the country with, and I apologize, I'm not sitting in front of the number right now. The last I saw was 32.2%, right? which means that nearly 68% of the country voted for somebody else. Yeah. And this, you know, again, due to our first-past-the-post system in Canada, this is the leader of the country. So that will be the smallest margin to have ever led a government in, this, in Canada's history. And it's the second straight federal election, Mike, that the Liberals have finished second in opinion polls or the popular vote. And, you know, lead the country. That's fine. That's how our democracy works. But nevertheless, it shows that, you know, for Justin Trudeau, you know, there's not a lot of strength in that philosophy. His single-minded goal to get a majority government completely failed. He wastes an enormous amount of taxpayer dollars, time, and effort. We have a near-carbon copy in 2021 to what we had in 2019. And while the knives aren't necessarily out for him right now, what has he really accomplished?
1: Nothing. Oh, well, he's a, I guess he's accomplished another, another kick as prime minister. But let me, let me play uh, a clip here for you from the federal NDP leader Jugmeet Singh here. Eh, the, kind of a disappointing night for Singh. I think they were hoping for better once again. Here he is uh, saying that the NDP will carry on. My friends, I want you to know that our fight will continue. We are never going to give up fighting for you and your families. As we have done in the pandemic, as we showed you in this campaign, we will continue to make sure you are first, your families are taken care of, that your needs are met. That's what New Democrats are all about. Okay, federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is speaking last night. Michael, where are the NDP at right now? I mean, can you say that Singh holds the balance of power here? Because Trudeau could, I mean, he could play poker with the the Bloc Québécois leader too, right? Yeah, absolutely, and he may. Um, Yes, Singh is somewhat of a kingmaker, but
0: I think the argument could also be made, Mike, that the NDP is more of a kingmaker than Jagmeet Singh is. In fact, if anything, under Singh's leadership, the NDP really hasn't grown. Yes, they, uh, they added a couple of additional seats last night, and obviously they'll look at that as a success. But if you look at their numbers, say, in your province of British Columbia, where they were really thinking of having a bigger breakthrough, uh, it really didn't materialize. I mean, they held some of the seats that they were expected to hold. They were competitive in others. But throughout, through B.C. and the rest of the country, the numbers really just didn't add up, and the, and the yeah. NDP is not moving much of anywhere. Okay. So if they hope to eventually get to a position where not necessarily Jack Layton's astonishing you know, a result in 2011, the Orange Crush, but maybe something similar to what Tom Mulcair held after him, if they want to get back into the 40s in terms of their numbers or be at least a little bit more competitive, I think at least with Singh at the helm, I don't think they're going to necessarily accomplish it Again, I don't know if the NDP is ready to bolt and throw him out immediately, but if they mm-hmm. look at the numbers and they look at the results that he's had running uh, the federal party,
1: there's not been anything terribly impressive. Okay. Uh, lots of phone calls coming in. Let's uh, take one right now, and then we'll take some more sure. calls on the other side of the break, too. Wendy on the line in Langley. Hi, Wendy. Go ahead.
2: Good morning. Um, I'm going to echo the sentiments of a previous caller, but I'm also in the Langley City Cloverdale riding. Yeah. And I was really torn this election who to vote for because federally, I don't want to support Trudeau. I really thought that Singh is the, is the best leader and I wanted to vote NDP. But at the end of the day, I think you got to support the candidate that's going to represent you best. So I voted for John Aldag and I am so happy that Tamara Jansen is gone because she was the worst MP we ever had.
1: Yeah, the the Liberal candidate uh, t- takes over from the incumbent candidate, Conservative candidate in that uh, riding. Michael, your thoughts?
0: Well, I mean, as we saw via the election result, obviously many Canadians were just happy with the status quo, but there were wow. a number of ridings here and there, including some Liberal cabinet ministers who fell by the wayside. Maria Monsa, for example, in Ontario. So, Based on what I'm hearing here, and I obviously haven't looked at Langley as closely as I have with other writings, um, I did see that Jensen fell. I was aware of that. Again, if there is frustration or if people are just sort of looking for different options, yeah. they may vote strategically, as the caller said and suggested. And I'm not shocked to hear that. And we see that from time to time. But sometimes that strategy can actually work against you and you end up with the candidate you don't want
1: getting back into office. But I guess in Langley's case, it worked the opposite way. And your calls in the open line, lots of calls. Michael in Vancouver, hi. Oh, hi, good morning,
0: uh, Mike and Michael. Uh, Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I just want to ask you a question. Why, uh, Why is the minority government a problem? It works everywhere else in the world. Uh, For example, we criticize China, North Korea, for being a one-party state. And yet, when we have uh, have a minority, we have to take into consideration of other uh, parties' interests. And yet, we're complaining. So that's number one. Number two, I just want to say that I'm very proud to be a Canadian.
1: Um, We accept the results. We move on. uh, And that's how democracy works. Okay, Michael, thank you for the call. Well, I'm not sure anyone was complaining here this morning. Uh, uh, You know, a lot of people are probably happy with the minority result again. Michael Tobe. I guess some are. I mean, obviously, since the status
0: quo held, and we we can certainly assume that. I mean, obviously, there are many, quite frankly, Mike, like myself, who are not pleased, but that's life. And I appreciate the caller's comments and suggestions. Democracy is messy. We know that. I mean, that's just a paraphrasing of an old quote, but that's sort of how it works. And unfortunately i've worked in a lot of different campaigns i've worked in ottawa and i've done many different things and lots of other people who come on your show mike have obviously done the same thing and have the same credentials and we know that there are just unfortunately moments in time where an election obviously goes in our favor and other times where it doesn't operate properly and it doesn't work well that's just the nature of democracy so I mean, there's no point in sitting and being frustrated for very long. I mean, obviously, for a day or two, maybe upwards of a week, some oh. will. But you have to pull up your bootstraps, especially on the conservative side, and try to sort of figure out what the next steps are. Where okay. should the party go? What direction should it take? Does it wish to stay with Aaron O'Toole as this leader or move on to someone else? And then rejig the platform and the political compass so that hopefully you can encourage more people to vote for you whenever the next federal election is called
1: okay steve on the open line calling from scotch creek hi steve
0: yeah there seems to be two british columbians you have golden kamloops Kelowna, salmon arm voting one way and then you have the vancouver mainland which votes ndp which puzzles me because i noticed there were five seats in edmonton that would have went liberal if they weren't splitting the vote now if you're voting ndp Instead of liberal, doesn't the liberal party give you seventy to eighty percent of what you want? So why do you go for a party that's not one to form government, and two you have more? I like the French French system. You have runoffs. I don't like government light, but that's what we get because the NDP is played in the vote.
1: Okay, Steve. Thanks for the call. What kind of position is Jugmeet Singh as as the NDP leader in in this Parliament right now, Michael? Would you say?
0: Well, as we discussed off the top, Mike, I mean, he is basically either a kingmaker or his party is the kingmaker. It's not always going to work that way. And I agreed with your point, Mike, that the block could be used to obviously pass through a certain amount of legislation, different bills, priorities, etc., because both the BQ and the NDP are left of center. So obviously, Justin Trudeau can go to either one and partner with them or both, depending on what the issue is, to get legislation passed. But right now, that's really where Singh's role is. Singh's role is basically the same as what Singh's role was in 2019. Roughly the same number of seats, the same position, the same status as a possible kingmaker. And like I said before, not to be a broken record, nothing
1: much has really changed from 2019 to 2021. (laughs) It really hasn't changed much at all. Bill in Richmond, hi. Hi. So this time, for the first time ever,
0: I voted conservative in a strategic vote against the Liberals Specifically, because the Liberals are going after law abiding, uh, legal gun owners. You know, the low hanging fruit. They don't go after the gangsters, but they go after the legal, law, the most law abiding people in Canada, and they're going okay. after them because they own firearms.
1: Okay, thanks for the call. This is an issue, Michael, we talked a lot about on the show in the, during the election, or a few times anyway, about the, the yep. gun politics and. I thought the conservatives were in a, a difficult spot. I'm not sure they that O'Toole handled it well. Kind of changing position midstream, putting a, a footnote in a, in his own platform. Uh, that wedge issue seemed to work for Trudeau. Do you think? Do you agree? A little bit. I mean, I don't think any issue
0: really stuck during this campaign. To be honest with you, Mike. Like, the only issue that people were really worried about or concerned about was the fact that we were voting early during COVID-19, but even then, it didn't really necessarily change the vote. Uh, With respect to guns, yes, I mean, that issue did obviously enter the news cycle for a couple of days, and you're right that Aaron O'Toole had to sort of adjust his position a little bit to ensure that everyone understood that assault and assault-style weapons were covered under that dynamic, but I think in reality... Your last caller is sort of taking a position that certainly some Canadians believed. I mean, Conservatives by nature, the Conservative Party, supports the principle of gun rights or the freedom of ownership of people in a democratic society if they wish or so choose to own a gun. And I agree that the Liberals have often built a not only strongly gun control position, but have also gone after or at least opened the door, if nothing else, to go after legal law-abiding hunters, gun collectors, you know, whatever you wish to say. So I don't know if it was a major issue. I don't think it necessarily moved the political needle all that much in this election. But yes, I mean, it was certainly an issue for a few days. It got people Mm. riled up for a bit until they moved on to, well, to be perfectly honest, to nothing, which is basically what happened in the election.
1: Let's squeeze in one more call here. We just got a minute left. Grin in Abbotsford. Hi, go ahead
2: hi um so just want to say as a mom i'm concerned by two things number one fiscal responsibility towards all canadians and our future calling a 600 million dollar election in the midst of a pandemic does not show me any type of responsibility towards our kids and the amount of tax burden he's placed on them number two is just overall being a good person and this man is not a good person, a leader that Canadians have chosen. is very disappointing to me today. Let's not forget about blackface okay. and yeah. what he's done to Jody Wilson-Raybould and Indigenous people. Yeah. This is not a good person. Why is he still leading my country after all of these horrible things
1: that he's done? Okay, said? Grant, Thank, thank you for the call. 30 seconds, Michael, your thoughts. Sure, but
0: unfortunately, you know, as Selena Cesar Chavanez, one of the former Liberal yeah. MPs, basically said that during this election, all you're doing is awarding Justin Trudeau another term for bad behavior. It's a bit of a paraphrase, but that's what she was implying. Okay. And I agree with your caller. This is unfortunately a major problem in this country that Justin Trudeau has all these things, blackface, too, you know, the two-plane policy, all the issues that he's had. Michael, thank you. getting elected, but that's how it goes.
1: Michael, thanks for your time today. My bet. Take care. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the drive to get more people vaccinated against COVID-19 now with the Delta variant continuing to circulate. One of the strategies right now, pop-up vaccine clinics in B.C. schools as health authorities try to get more kids age 12 and over vaccinated against COVID-19. As Of course, as usual, though, there is resistance in some quarters. Don't forget those protests we saw last week in the North ok- ok- Okanagan District School District there, which were locked down this week after COVID-19 vaccine pro- protesters actually entered three schools in the Salmon Arm area. One of the questions that's raised by this is, what are the rules around children being vaccinated against COVID-19 if their parents uh, do not provide... Uh, the authority to do that can a kid get the vaccine anyway even if their parents disagree let's discuss now with my guest dr barinder narang he is a family physician and co-founder of the this is our shot campaign i'm very pleased to welcome him to the show dr narang thank you for coming on today
3: uh, good morning mike thank you for having me Yeah,
1: hey, i appreciate you being here do you think uh vaccine clinics in public schools is a good idea right now
5: I think overall it is a good good idea because it's something that's been uh, established for a long time. We've had school-based vaccination programs, um, as long as I can remember, where we routinely give um, um, uh, grade 6 shots and grade 9 shots, including things like hepatitis B, tetanus boosters, and uh, HPV vaccines. So it makes sense.
1: Yeah, especially when in some parts of the province we're trying to increase the vaccination rate. Like when you take a look at the vaccine rate among uh, children, like say kids age 12 and over, and they're, that's the only age group where there's a vaccine available right now. Uh, there could be a vaccine available for younger kids pretty soon, we're told. But right now it's for 12 and, and older. Is that a, is it a concern in some parts of the province that the vaccine rates are lower than we'd like in that age bracket?
5: Yeah. I think, uh, as with all brackets, um, and this data is available in the CDC if anyone is updated, you just Google BCCDC COVID-19 data and look up vaccine reports, and it lets you look up per by jurisdiction and different age groups, first or second dose. But there's definitely variability um, that we're seeing between the different health authorities. And so um, I haven't looked at the latest for the, that 12 to 17 group. What I do know overall is there are some parts of the lower mainland where overall 12 plus we're at like 93% first dose, including in Metro Vancouver area. And then there are other parts which are still down in the 60 to seventies percent And I think that, that we're seeing that reflected across all age groups.
1: Okay. Dr. Narang, when it comes to kids age 12 and over, uh, let's say uh, their parents don't want to give consent for their child to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. There is a system in British Columbia called Mature Minor Consent. Now, it is recommended by the health authorities that parents or guardians do give consent to their children to get vaccinated. But in, in a rare case, I guess, where you do not, like a, a kid can go to a vaccine clinic, right, and get the COVID shot without the without the consent of their parents. Correct?
0: Yeah. Yeah, um, um,
5: so it, it depends. Now, um, I'll look at this a little differently. So now, the mature minor legislation is actually something that's all across Canada. And um, it essentially, um, the, the role of it is um, is based on a trust, special relationship of trust between physicians and the patients that requires that physicians act in the patient's best interests. And so right. there's no age cutoff for that. But the general consensus is it's around age fourteen, and we and going back to the example I gave of um, grade six and nine. In grade six, the vaccine we generally expect that the parents will have to give consent for it. For grade nine, we generally accept that the students can provide that consent themselves. Now, that's for the routine established vaccine program. With right. the new ones, it it, uh, it definitely is a, a definitely a point of contention even within families that we're seeing, and I think. Um, while we have that as a legal framework, it might not be, uh, you know, I wouldn't rely solely on that because it is based on a relationship between the physician and the patient to determine the, um, the patient's competency and ability to make that decision for themselves in an informed manner. That is the type of discussion that isn't necessarily best had in a vaccine clinic setting. So while that might be the ultimate decision, uh, going to your primary care provider and having this discussion is that now as um, let's say I have a 14, 15 year old come in for any type of concern, whether it's vaccine related, mental health related, physical health, puberty, um, sexual health, all these sorts of things. Um, we know are um, lots of changes happening in teenage world. Um, we always have a discussion with a patient by themselves even if it's a child and we say hey this is a safe space for you we're not going to break your confidentiality based on what you tell me but um, we would encourage you to invite your parents in at some point to have this conversation whether it's today or another day and so that there can be a multi-part conversation and i think that is generally the best way because if um especially now going back to covid vaccines if that is going to be something that's a cause of strife within the family, um, that while they're physically protected from COVID, there might be a lot of negative impact on their overall wellness. And so what I would suggest is have the conversation, have these open discussions with your primary care provider, with your family present, if possible, and, and try to come to a, a, um, a decision that works within the family, family dynamic. Uh, and obviously, I, I would hope that that um, conversation right. does uh, result in the child getting vaccinated.
1: Okay, speaking to Dr. Barinder Narung, he is the founder of the "This Is Our Shot" campaign, uh, getting as many people vaccinated as possible. Dr. Narung, I uh, I follow you on Twitter, which I, I encourage listeners to do as well. Uh, you posted on there the other day uh, a sample of a vaccine exemption letter. So, if someone, let's say, someone comes to you and they say look, Doc, I can't take the vaccine because I've got a rare medical condition. Can you write them a, a note that says, okay, you don't have to take the vaccine, or are there are guidelines and rules you have to follow in order to do that, right?
5: Absolutely, we have to um, follow the rules. And the, the guidance that I had posted up was um, a collaborative guidance that came out through the Ministry of Health and the College of Physicians and, Physicians, uh, the, sorry, Physicians and Surgeons of British Columbia, which is our regulatory body. And so we have to write... We can only write something that is in, you know, a medical, ethical, legal framework that we're allowed to. And so a lot of that time, the decision isn't in our hands. And that is frustrating for the patient because I think sometimes they may think that we have more power than we actually do. And, um, you know, I I think the guidance that they've given us makes sense. So there are certain conditions um, for contraindication, like an absolute contraindication to get vaccinated, which is very rare. And that is actually having a history of an anaphylactic. So what is anaphylactic? That's a severe allergic reaction where cl- basically your throat is closing up. One of those emergency type things. Um, and that's if you have an anaphylactic reaction to both components in the mRNA and the adenovirus vaccine, which is the uh, um, AstraZeneca one. And so that's, it's for someone to be allergic to both, I, I, I imagine there's uh, a handful, maybe less, in the entire province that have that. Then there are, op- uh, there, but that's for an absolute contraindication. There are um, situations where it's reasonable to defer a vaccine. And those are, I, I won't get into all of them, but there's some of these inflammatory conditions we've seen if people have had certain um, treatments for severe COVID where they've been in ICU, um, or if they have a suspected um, severe allergy where, um, you know, G seeing an allergy specialist prior to making the decision makes sense. And so it's not saying, hey, we say we support that you absolutely cannot get the vaccine. But, yeah, it definitely warrants more of a closer look in your personal defer, situation.
1: Like a deferral, yeah. as you called exactly. it, like a defer, a deferral would mean, OK, you, maybe you would not take the vaccine right now, but it doesn't mean you exactly. might you could take it later. Exactly. Right. OK. Would you would it be fair to say and we're going to take a quick break and then take some phone calls on, on these topics. But w- would you say it's fair to say that there are there are a considerable number of people out there who think or believe that they can't take the COVID vaccine for a medical reason when they really can?
5: Yeah, I, I think that, um, that I see this as, a, that as an opportunity to educate, where people do have sometimes beliefs um, about what their own immune system is doing or um, that they have a perceived hypersensitivity or that they do have a medical condition which they're not sure. Hey, well, I'm on you know, immunosuppressant medication. Do I need to be worried about the vaccine? In my lens that, that that's an extra reason for me to tell you to get it. But for your um, your perception is that that is a higher risk thing for you to take the vaccine. So it's all it's all part of the discussion. And it's a um, and this is our goal as family physician is like to address patients, fears, ideas and thoughts about right. what um, their concerns are and address them in um, an evidence based manner.
1: Dr. Barinder Narung is my guest. Let's go to your phone calls. Laura in Richmond. Hi, Laura. Hi,
2: thanks so much for taking my call.
3: Sure, It's
2: great that you have this guest on the show. Thank you. Um, I have an 11-year-old, and everyone else in our family is double vaccinated, but the 11-year-old is not yet, and I've been holding off. He's very light he's very underweight for his age compared to other kids he's about like half the weight of other 12 year olds and 11 year olds so and i just heard that study on the radio about the 10 milligram dose being tested in 5 to 11 year olds versus the 30 milligram dose and then it produced just as good antibodies and i was wondering if if you think that they're going to go forward with perhaps a weight-based approach with kids anytime soon
1: oh interesting question dr nurang your thoughts
5: yeah, uh, thanks, Laura. That's a great question. Um, and yeah, so um, just to kind of reiterate that the Pfizer did submit data um, for health. I, I'm sorry, I, they've released um, a memo about their data yesterday, um, but it's being submitted to Health Canada. And we're hoping by the end of October, our third week, October, that's what Dr. Henry was saying, that we, we should get an update on whether it's going to get approved. I mean, from what we are, the top line, we do see that it is positive, And yes, they're using one third of the dose. Now, we don't generally always have to use um, weight-based um, uh, vaccination methods. Um, in some of them, we do. There's like um Havir, which is Hep A and, and Hepatitis B vaccines. There are a junior version, which is uh, weight-based or kind of a lower-dose one. So while it's not, it's usually generally there's a, a dose up to a certain weight, and then there's an adult dose. So it's not like, you know, every 10 kilos or pounds that you would a- adjust the dose. And that's because the immune system doesn't necessarily work that way, um, but in saying that, um, they postulated that one third of the dose would uh, um, produce uh, a lower, um, uh, uh, sorry, an adequate immune response, and that works. That's what we're seeing. But then the balance is: then um, will that um, uh, do the side, Does the side effect profile also fit that? Because you know there are some populations that, like, why are we having these inflammatory synd- um, symptoms? Maybe it is because the dose of the vaccine um, is higher than what we actually need to reach that threshold of immunity. And so I think that's yeah. what we're what, that's what we're learning
1: right now. Okay, Laura, thank you for that call. Ash on the line in Surrey. Hi.
5: Hey, how's it going? Um, I actually got my uh, second dose uh, yesterday, and I appreciate uh, you taking my call. Um, I got two uh, little questions. Um, One, I'm kind of curious why we're just putting all of our eggs in one basket. Um, I think many doctors know that obesity is quite a health issue, and it's a really big issue with COVID, and it's not getting mentioned at all. I mean, even without COVID, it could really... uh, doctors talk about obesity more it could really save our health system a lot of money and space and secondly i'm curious if it's possible that we could have um, an emergency health system almost like the military has the reserves Could we have extra beds somewhere Uh, we could have health care professionals um, almost on reserve like the military and they could be trained on the weekend Uh, they could be paid for school that kind of thing i'm just wondering if that's possible to kind of beef up our health system
1: ash thank you for the call let me just uh, let's just take his first question uh, Dr. Narong, and what do you think about his thought? There not because I've heard this as well from other people saying, "Why isn't there not more emphasis on keeping people healthy, vigorous through exercise, nutrition to keep people healthy so that they're fit and able to fight off the of the virus if they do get it?" But your thoughts?
5: Yeah. So thanks. And first of all, today congratulations, stash. You got your second dose, so in a couple of weeks you'll be uh, you'll have your full protection. So that's great, and hopefully that's the side effects aren't too harsh on you in the next uh, day or two. But that's great. Um, now, with obesity, yes, absolutely. We know that it, it's an ongoing issue that um, uh, in all most of the Western world, and we know that it, um, there is a, an inflammatory and hormonal component to obesity, and we know that um, um, some one of the indicators that we have found about people that are getting sick, requiring. Um, uh, hospital admissions in ICU say that there is a component of age, hypertension, uh, well, sorry, the more older men who are hypertensive, obese, with metabolic conditions. So when we look at that, that does suggest that something that, yes, people are sus- uh, more susceptible to illnesses um, with that happening. Absolutely yeah. it's an issue. And and in the long term, it's a, an issue we need to look at. Right now, it, it, it's, um, it, it's important to recognize, but right now there's not much like if someone is in the current COVID pandemic, an obesity and um, tackling obesity can be is a very long um, and challenging pathway that requires a strong relationship with your physician and also with also allied health providers, whether it's some kind of physical activity support, nutrition support. So it definitely has to be part of the strategy. But for right now, um, like that we wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to prevent people from getting COVID right now by introducing that right now. But preventing it years from now, absolutely, we have to be discussing that.
1: Okay, we just have one minute left, sadly. So I'll try and squeeze in one more call. Ash and Suri, but you got to go quick. All oh, right, sorry. You always talk to Ash, right? Yes. Yeah, Adam. Sorry, Adam. Adam, go ahead. You got to go quick, though.
0: Yeah. Hey, uh, just a question regarding uh, natural immunity. There's not a lot of chat about that, and it looks like there's some evidence coming out that uh, it can be as good as double vaccinated. Would it be reasonable? uh for an antibodies test uh and if your natural immunity is good would, is, is there any reason to get vaccinated
1: dr Narung, you got 30 seconds here uh-huh. yeah um so you can't answer that quickly but essentially we, we we don't want to be looking at it as a natural
5: state of immunity because to get that you have to have the infection and right now we can't predict, well, we have some indicators that I just mentioned, but there's still not enough known to know who is going to get to the um, sick enough. We know there's young 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds who are getting okay. in hospital too, ICU, don't know it yet. But yes, if there is a way for post-infectious or a combination of post-infectious immunity plus one booster, um, if that is the way to go, um, yes, but we don't have the, uh, the robust evidence we need for that.
1: All right, let's talk about urban street crime in B.C. Now, this has been a focus for us on the show. The Vancouver Police Department stepping up downtown patrols in response to growing complaints. Lots of problems in Victoria, too. Let's discuss now with my guest, Michael Mulligan. Michael is a criminal defense lawyer and a legal analyst in Victoria. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Michael, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. All right, Michael, let's talk about the problems we're seeing on the streets right now. In Vancouver, you've got crime spikes in the West End, break-ins, vandalism, assaults, general mayhem. In Victoria, more of the same. you got random assaults downtown. People don't feel safe. Seven police officers assaulted recently. Even the police chief was assaulted outside the legislature. Michael, would you uh, agree that the system's not working here, that these problems are getting worse in some neighborhoods. Your thoughts? Uh, Well,
4: there certainly are challenges, and I should say that I have a a great deal of uh, sympathy for the uh, really tough time the police have been having trying to manage some of these issues. Uh, And I should say that in the context, of course, I'm defense counsel, right? Right. Um, And I I should say that uh, some of the challenges that the police have been having uh, are not really of their own making, at least in Canada. Uh, th- there's been a general deterioration in sort of respect for the police and how they've been treated, in some uh, respects, flowing from things completely out of their control, right? Yeah. Um, there are things including the murder of George Floyd in the U.S., the defund the police movement. Uh, there's been uh, concern generated over the uh, enforcement of court orders, uh, which, uh, again, are just not the... Uh, uh, result of uh, police decisions Um, and then there have been increased uh, challenges brought on by for example in the Victoria context the uh, city government here uh, made a decision uh, during the pandemic to permit uh, 24-hour camping in parks which produced uh, attendant social disorder and serious challenges for the police and all of that is in the context of there being Uh, inadequate uh, provision uh, of services to deal with underlying issues like serious issues of mental health, often combined with serious issues of drug addiction. And so the police at the end of the day are the the sort of last resort, right? Mm. When you don't provide adequate services and support for people who desperately need intervention to help them with their drug addiction and mental illness, the last bastion, the people who can't... uh, pass the buck on to anyone else wind up being the police. And so you have this uh, toxic combination of um, uh, sort of decreased respect for policing I think generally flowing from things that are outside of the control of local police forces combined with a circumstance where they're being left to deal with people who are suffering from profound mental illness and drug addiction and the conflict that results from that uh, and that's played out in the form of police officers being assaulted right up to the police chief having things uh, poured on them, none of which is acceptable. Uh, well, but I suppose that really brings us to what do we do about that,
1: right? Right. Well, the police are talking about a a criminal justice system that's been called a revolving door system, a catch-and-release system. And I interviewed Victoria Police Chief Dalmanic on the show yesterday. I know you're familiar with his concerns. And he said, look, like police are dealing with chronic repeat offenders, like police arrest them for a property crime, they're released, they commit crimes again, they're arrested again, released again, rinse and repeat. Why do we not keep these chronic offenders locked up, or at the very least with much stricter conditions so the police can keep tabs on them? Well, the
4: conditions are a good question because the police do have some control over that. Uh, But The fundamental problem is not uh, some challenge with uh, releasing people who are charged with uh, offenses like shoplifting. And while I understand the frustration of the police, the answer to these substantial uh, questions and problems uh, is not to uh, detain people in prison prior to their trial when they are charged with shoplifting. Uh, That will not address the underlying issues of mental illness and drug addiction, you just would manage to undermine the concept of the presumption of innocence and shove your mental health problems two or three months down the road until the mentally ill, drug-addicted shoplifter uh, is released from uh, jail because uh, we are not going to keep people in uh, jail for years and years uh, who are committing uh, property crimes as a result of their drug addiction and mental illness. If you want to uh, ensure that we have a uh, safe society and that we treat people Uh, in a a human fashion, uh, you need to have the resources available to treat those underlying issues. We won't solve mental illness, and we won't solve drug addiction by denying people bail and and holding them in jail before they've had a trial. Why not? Well, I can understand.
1: Well, how about, okay, I take those points, but you've got BC mayors and municipal councillors now calling for action on this too, and... They want some action on the points that you just suggested, the mental health crisis, the addiction crisis. But they're also saying we would like to see tougher sentencing guidelines when it comes to chronic offenders, including stricter monitoring when people are released. So they're saying, why not electronic monitoring? Like if you have a chronic offender, could you could you make that offender wear like a GPS equipped ankle bracelet or something so they don't break their release conditions and police can know where they are?
4: Uh, Well, when the city council has those people living in the uh, city parks, I'm not sure what you're electronically monitoring them to do. Uh, If you don't want people breaking into your car to steal your change or breaking into your local businesses to steal uh, food or things that they can sell to buy drugs, you need to deal with the underlying drug addiction and provide treatment for mental illness. Uh, You will not uh, avoid those sorts of things that sort of criminal activity and indeed more serious criminal activity by ankle bracelets ensuring the person is staying near to their tent in the city park. Uh, and the background of all of this, of course, in British Columbia um, is that we made a decision that it wasn't humane to keep people who were suffering from mental illness uh, against their will in institutions. We closed Riverview. And at yeah. the time, the that uh, was a hospital where people were kept in Coquitlam. Uh, and uh, the alternative to that was to provide services for people who are mentally ill and not in an institution. That's expensive. We didn't do it. Uh, And so you have those people uh, living rough in the park, uh, and the last people that can't pass the buck any further are the police. And so they are understandably frustrated that there doesn't appear to be a solution that they're able to implement. But at the core of it, The problem is not a criminal justice problem, and we're not going to be able to solve the problem of mental illness by imprisoning people charged with property offenses or putting electronic bracelets on them. Well,
1: on that point, Michael, how about the Mental Health Act? Because this is another huge problem that police say they're dealing every day with people who are mentally ill on the streets who are a danger to themselves and they're a danger to others. And we see unwell people on the street every day. And the cops can arrest someone under the Mental Health Act. But then what happens to that person? I mean, they may get assessed by a doctor, but it appears there are not a lot of treatment beds available, no rehab available, so they get they just get put right back on the streets, right?
4: In some cases, you're quite right. And I think that's a very good point. Uh, Under the mental health legislation, you can only keep somebody against their will for treatment if the doctors conclude that they are a danger to themselves or others. Interestingly, we still have a vestige of an alternative approach in our Offence Act to deal with people who are a chronic alcoholic. There's actually legislation still on the books that would allow the police to arrest somebody if they're chronically an alcoholic and have somebody forced into receiving treatment. Uh, it's not used because we don't have a place to force them to go. Uh, And so there is, I think, a live uh, political question about should we be uh, requiring people uh, to undergo treatment for drugs or to accept treatment for mental illness on a test of something short of are they going to be a danger to other people um, or a danger to themselves? And I think that's a live question. Um, but to do that, we need to have the places available. If you don't have a place to force the person to go, the debate about do we force people to go somewhere to get help is rather meaningless, um, and perhaps as a starting point, we should have uh, beds available for people who want treatment for their mental illness or want treatment uh, for their drug addiction. That would be, sure, a great starting point, point. Um, and once we have that available, then perhaps we can have a discussion about whether there should be a requirement uh, to get that kind of help. Uh, And there may well be merit to that. But the answer is not the criminal justice system. You don't leave the mentally ill, drug-addicted person, wait till they shoplift something to feed their addiction, and then put them in prison for a few months. That's just kicking the problem down the field. We need to have the treatment options, and then we can have a discussion about um, if we're not getting enough people to voluntarily take those things up, whether we require it.
1: Okay, Michael, last question for you. You mentioned uh, the Riverview Institution, which was shut down, and this example comes up a lot. And I remember the debate that preceded shutting that facility down, and a lot of people were concerned about uh, abuse that was going on in these facilities, that it wasn't fair, to get, people were not getting well for their, their mental illness in these institutions, let's close them down. And I think you're right. They, they closed them down maybe with good intentions, but then they didn't bring in the supports for people who were on the streets. Do you think that consideration should be given to reopening a facility like Riverview?
4: I think a starting point would be to have the services at least available for people who want them. Surely, when the police are is faced with a uh, you know a young person who's obviously dealing with a drug addiction and is homeless, surely it would be an advantage even if we can have a debate about can, should we or can we require people to get help, surely it would be advantageous and everyone can agree that when the police are called to somebody who's in profound distress due to their mental illness or drug addiction, surely we can all agree that the police should have available to them, look, sir, over here is an available treatment facility. There's an open bed. Can I take you there? Uh, We can all agree upon that. That's hardly controversial, and we don't have that. So let's start with having the uh, available services, and then we can discuss whether we should compel people to get help when they don't voluntarily take up the help.
1: Michael, thank you for coming on with your thoughts and analysis today. appreciate it.
4: Thank you so much for having me.